Listener Production. Hello, Antoinette Latouf here hosting this weekend briefing. And today we're talking marriage, we're talking divorce, and some pretty high profile women making the case for divorce. There is nothing better than being in your 30s, still being hot, maybe having a little bit of your own money, figuring out what you want to do with your life, everything. And having tried that married fantasy and realizing that it's maybe not all it's cracked up to be. And then you've got your whole life still ahead of you. For all of those people who are stressed or feeling stressed about that, about being divorced, like, it's good. Congratulations. That's actress and model Emily Ratajkowski. And sure, while Hollywood divorces are nothing new, what is new is a book that suggests that women should not get married in the first place. It's called I Don't, The Case Against Marriage. And I'll be chatting with author Clementine Ford, who many of you will know is an Australian feminist, broadcaster and speaker. And a little later, Helen Smith and I will bring you the weekend list where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat, listen to and everything in between. But first, here's a chat about love, patriarchy, children and independence with Clementine Ford. So, Clem, was there a particular moment in your life, a time in your life or a light bulb moment or an experience or something that made you think, right, screw the status quo, it sucks. I'm committing my brains, my efforts um, into feminism and trying to shake this shit up. I don't know that there was one particular motivating moment. You know, I didn't have my... um some people would call it like the hero awakening and other people would call it my like villain origin story. I don't know that there was one moment, (laughs) but I did always like a lot of women actually, but we never talk about it. Maybe they are starting to now amongst younger women. I hope so. But I grew up feeling like I just sort of wasn't really, I didn't really fit in, you know, and I wouldn't, when I say this, I don't mean to say that I had any kind of gender dysphoria. I never felt like I wasn't a girl and and I and I really know that that's a very different experience for people who have gender dysphoria but I felt like everything I was being told about what it meant to be a girl I didn't fit mm-hmm. into that and so I felt very defeminized a lot of the time and outside of the acceptable expressions of femininity so in a way as painful as that was when I was younger and again I I think a lot of girls feel that way because the goalposts are always shifting on what we're meant to be but in a way I sort of very early on accepted that that wasn't going to be my storyline, this kind of like romantic fairy tale. And it's the best thing that could, rightly or wrongly, whether or not I was correct about that, is the best thing really that could have happened to me because I ended up then threw myself into gender studies when I got to university and through that found this language that I had always kind of had inside me, but I didn't have the words to express all of these things that I felt. And it meant that I could spend this really formative period of my 20s not caring about what men thought of me because I'd already sort of weirdly accepted that that's a a waste of my energy because it's not going to go anywhere. And then I ended up being able to develop a really robust political framework and a really robust uh, assertion of myself that now at 42, when a lot of women start to feel invisible because the culture doesn't like women over a certain age. And they really feel the loss of what that means. They really feel the distinct difference between how they were treated in their twenties versus now. I just feel more powerful than ever because I've never worried about sharing my mind. I'm just getting more and more forthright about that. And I never worried about, or I got to the point where I, it didn't matter to me if 
I had the currency of male approval and male attention. So now I have my own currency. I have my own, my own bank here, the bank of Clem. Fabulous. And hopefully the bank of Clem doesn't aggressively raise interest rates. <laughs> Just as an aside, but I'm keen to know how you describe yourself because you've had this awakening, yourself and your work, uh, because just in a moment, I'm going to jump into some of the delightful things that have been used to describe your voice and your work. How would you describe your work? I think my work brings into the light things that women aren't meant to talk about. And it is uncompromising and unapologetic, which are two things that women are definitely not supposed to be. So broadly speaking, I would say that, you know, I did a podcast with Jamila Jamil yesterday and she said that uh, she described it perfectly. She was like, you get happier and happier, the more able you are to put things in place. And I feel like that's what I try to do is Mm. I try to put things in place not just for me to understand them, but in a way that other women will understand what's going on around them. It's like naming the things that we've been taught to believe are invisible. I think that that's been really successful. And I know that that's been successful because I hear from women all the time who say to me, you put things into words that I knew were there, but that I didn't know mm. how to talk about, which is what I always always wanted when I was younger. So it's it's about, I suppose, creating a very clear. And I think one of the things that I do is that, you know, I don't shy away from complicated ideas, but I think that I put them in accessible ways for people to understand them without Mm. reducing them or without making them less, you know, that's not like they're summarized in a 30 second TikTok video, which I'm not disparaging, but that kind of content absolutely has its place. You know, there's a real classism obviously associated with some particularly academic wings of liberation movements. And that is that in order to really know what you're talking about, it has to be impenetrable. And I've I've never been interested in reading impenetrable texts and I certainly don't want to write them. Some of the words um, that I have seen associated with your name, firebrand, radical, man-hating, controversial, my favourite, hysterical. And as much as I would love to dismiss these sentiments as like the fragile dudes who are writing from their grandmother's basements or sometimes even women trying to emulate attitudes and power structures um, uh, created by men so they get chucked a few crumbs, um, there are career consequences and there is backlash and there are doors closed when you when you speak mm. your mind. How have you navigated that and continued to have um, and, you know, sustain a career and pay your bills and all the rest? Well, the first thing I'll say is that obviously the the man writing from his grandmother's basement is, uh, you know, it's it's a useful trope, but we, you and I both know that it's often men who are in suits. So it definitely comes from quite like privileged high quarters. I mean, yes, doors have been closed to me. And I understand that, that there are people who are like, she's too much. She's too risky because I've sworn on television before. Get away with it if you're an old white man. If I were an old white man, I'd have three TV shows. So would you. Yeah, totally. But because we're women and because you have the additional layer of being an Arab woman, the doors are closed to you because you have to be nice and sweet all the time because you have to make sure that they think or that they believe you will never rock the boat and you will also be someone who they can always point to and say, well, she likes it. She doesn't have a problem with the work culture here. Mm. She's never been sexually harassed by anyone. So, yes, there are career consequences and I have certainly also made some huge mistakes that I don't you know, I'm not going to blame anyone else for. I've made those mistakes myself and hopefully have apologised and atoned for them in a way that has 
you know, I mean, at least personally, I feel like I've reflected on and grown from them. But I think the reason I'm still standing is because actually the work really does speak to people. And you can have traditional media and you can have the gatekeepers close all the doors on you. But what you can't have them close the door on is people's hunger to hear it and women's need to be seen in that way. And that's why I continue to be able to carve out a platform. And obviously, like when I talk about, you know, having doors closed to me, my books are published with one of the biggest publishers in the country and they are enormously supportive of me. So I'm, it's not like I'm sitting here yes. constantly outside the room where everything happens. Sure. But if it were true, what the men who say those things and some of the women who are their little, you know, patriarchal foot soldiers, what they say that these things are absurd and ridiculous and no sane woman would want to hear them and it's outdated and, and you know, whatever they want to say. If all that were true, I wouldn't be able to do the things that I'm still able to do because all women would feel that way. Mm. They would all think that what I was saying was ridiculous. And the fact that they don't, the fact that there is still such a hunger for it and that I'm still, despite the people who hate me, enormously popular with the people who like me and enormously profitable Mm. for the people who invest in me. I mean, that's something that the, the people who close the doors don't consider is that the reason business keeps coming back to me is because I make them money and they wouldn't be investing in me just because they believed in the strength of what I'm saying if I wasn't also bringing in an audience. I mean, that's just the practical reality of capitalism. So there is a hunger for it and people can try and shut you down, but it it ends up being not about the fact that what you're saying is irrelevant. It's that it's extremely relevant and they're very scared of it. Speaking of very scared, I did notice that despite the fact that last night your book wasn't available to the public, the audio version, it had a elicited a whole bunch of one-star reviews um, so that there are a whole bunch of people keen to hate it, um, but no doubt many who were curious to learn more about it. And I want to talk about you mounting the case against marriage. And by doing that, let's start off with its historical roots because that's an important part mm-hmm. of your argument. Yes. And before I go into that, I'll say that the book is really coming from a very Western context. So it's talking about Anglo history, which is relevant because obviously the British expansionist colonialist empire took its regressive belief system all across the world. So it has had a colonial impact. Uh, But obviously I can't speak about the history of marriage in China, say, because it's not my culture, it's not my background. And that would be a very, very thick book if you were trying to cover everything. So it is limited to our kind of Western context of history. It's a huge question to say what's the origins of marriage, but the simple answer to it is that marriage has for almost all of human history really been about empire building and about safety amongst numbers. So when we go back to um, nomadic tribal systems all over the world, pre-capitalist ideas, obviously, tribes would merge with each other through the exchange, sometimes of daughters, sometimes of sons, in order to build bigger tribes and bigger groups to have safety in numbers. Much safer to form an alliance with a nomadic tribe that you might meet along your travels than to risk, uh, you know, becoming into conflict with them. 
And also it was like, it's about trade. So it wasn't just human bodies that were traded to build the strength of the tribe. It was knowledge. It was tools. It was, it was, you know, you might teach them how to make a boat, that kind of thing. And then as, as society progressed through, you know, agrarian lifestyles and we became more rooted to one spot. So once you could have like a plot of land that you could farm and work for yourself, you could make your group smaller because you had more capacity to make money on with a smaller group of people, which meant that there was fewer people that you had to share everything with. And, you know, particularly with the aristocracy, like daughters became very much a tool of diplomacy, a tool of creating, you know, ties between diplomatic nations and uh, having no, absolutely no choice within that. And then amongst the smaller families that I guess were in the peasantry underneath those kingdoms, marriage again was still about building safety in numbers and, and and merging skills. People didn't get married for love. The idea of getting married for love is about 200 years old. Prior to that, it was about kinship building. And it was actually for all the jokes that people make about their in-laws now, it was about creating more in-laws. It was about creating a bigger family. And I used this example last night to someone the, the purpose of that, which we've kind of gotten away from much to our detriment, I think, well, in the West, at least in very white context, we've gotten away from the idea of larger families is that if you go to a restaurant by yourself and you want to have a nice meal, you might spend, say, say you've got a hundred dollars to spend on a nice meal. You might get a glass of wine, an entree and a small main maybe. And that will be your nice meal. If you go with two friends you can have like a couple of meals to share and maybe you're spending about the same amount of money. But if you go with a group of 10 people, you get to try everything on the menu. The price that you're paying for that food will probably actually be less because you don't need as much food to feed 10 people as ordering one meal for one person. So when you think about it in that kind of analogous way, the original purpose of marriage in that kind of kinship building context was to increase the capacity that the group had to survive together and to thrive together whilst decreasing the expenditure that that required. Now we live in a cultural mindset in the West where you get married and you have children and you move into a house by yourself and you don't want to have anything to do with your in-laws mostly. And you joke about that and you, you, it's all so siphoned off and it's actually harming the way that people connect. It's definitely harmful to mothers because they don't have, you know, people love to say, well, it takes a village, but it's just a thing that people say now. We don't actually put anything into creating those villages and anyone who wants to increase their villages or increase the support that they have is almost certainly amongst the white middle-class mothers who've been indoctrinated into this idea of sacrificial love, that to be a martyr is the pinnacle of motherhood, which is very much tied into capitalist and white supremacist ideas and that women have been enlisted into to prop up those systems, which we can see through the, you know, the 1950s period of the quote-unquote traditional housewife, which was actually just really the middle-class white woman and no one else, that women, when they ask for help, feel that guilt and shame about not being able to do it all. And that's crazy. That's insane that we have moved so rapidly away from relational communal living to this idea that we have to like be doing it in tiny little silos. Why do you think women need to be saying I don't? I think that the system 
of marriage has always been oppressive to women. It's never had our interests in mind for most of history and certainly the last thousand years of, you know, Western Judeo-Christian history, women had no legal rights. Our identities were considered to be under the banner of our fathers and then transferred to our husbands. Coverture has only really ended formally in the last hundred or so years. And still we have legacies of it today with women feeling like they need to give their children the father's name because, or saying like, I took his name because I wanted to have the same last name as my children, as if there's no possible social realm in which women could just say, well, I've birthed this child. So it's going to have my name because people say, well, it's just your father's name. Anyway, this idea that women have to sacrifice all the time in order to take care of men, take care of children, but also that without those things, we won't be happy. You know, the, all of the tropes you mentioned before, the men who say things to me on the internet, well, the men say things to women all the time on the internet, any hint of a woman having any kind of independent life. And he, he will, you'll just like look up and someone's there to mock you for growing old and lonely as a depraved old cat lady. Enjoy your old years by yourself. This fear that people have of what it would mean if women became independent and asserted their independence and asserted their subjectivity in all things is very threatening to a system that requires women to always be underneath propping men up. And one of the reasons why the system and why middle-class white women in particular have been enlisted into that is because in order to maintain, I mean, I don't need to explain this to you, but for the benefit of the listeners, in order to maintain the primacy of capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy, you need to look at that key group that can shift their allegiance at any point. And that's white women. And if white women shift their allegiance to working with liber- like other marginalized groups in liberation projects, if we decide to move our power structure to support people who, you know, to support the mothers of Palestine, then that becomes very threatening to the system that needs us to say, well, no, we are here supporting whiteness, capitalism, and patriarchy. And, and by proxy supporting the white men who run those things. That it can't have us shifting our allegiance. So it's it's promised us a superficial illusion of power and status by making us believe that having these things elevates us somehow in not just in the eyes of society, but in our own moral value, the moral value of the domestic angel at home who is just so in love with her husband and children. So Clementine, I'm about to have my 13th wedding anniversary. I've taken my husband's Mm -hmm. surname. Are you trying to get me divorced? (laughs) Well, listen, I will say that when I talk about marriage, it's actually mostly about the institution of marriage. I'm not saying to anyone that they can't fall in love. I'm, you know, I write in the book that I'm a deeply romantic person. I've been in love many times before. I, I hope to be in love again because I think that love is an integral experience of humanity. Romantic love is not the only kind of love that we can experience. Um, and I'm certainly not saying to you, Antoinette, that you should get divorced just because you're a sap if you stay married. But what I would say to you or to anyone listening, is that if the only reason you're staying married is because you're worried about what it looks like to be unmarried, or you are worried about what it means to quote unquote, break up a family because you've absorbed these ideas that have been thrust onto women, which is that the, we have to sacrifice our own happiness and our own safety to make sure that the family stays together. If anyone listening to this does feel invisible and unseen in their relationship, or like this is not what they thought it would be, 
then you are allowed to leave. You don't have to stay married. You do have value outside of marriage. And if you aren't yet married and you're feeling like you maybe don't want to, but that's a very sort of radical concept amongst your friends or your community, you're allowed to pursue your independence as well. So no, I'm not saying to you, you have to go out and get divorced, but I am saying to anyone listening that if you want to get divorced, do it. What about the benefits of parents in a healthy relationship? Mm. There's lots of research that say children are on average are more likely to thrive when they're raised in a stable two-parent home, whether that's same-sex or heterosexual. What about the arguments of marriage, good marriages, healthy marriages being better or safer for children? Well, this is the thing. It's about the question of what makes a good, healthy, happy marriage. And I don't think that a a signature on a government-issued piece of paper necessarily has anything to do with that. If you have a good, loving relationship, you don't need to be married in order to have a healthy environment in which to raise children. And also the question of what makes a healthy environment, that research about like, well, research shows that it's better to raise children in healthy, you know, marriages or partnerships, I think misses out a lot of the context of where we are at in society, which is that society and and the government and the economy and the welfare system makes it so hard to raise children in a single mother household. It makes it so hard to raise children if you have any kind of disability or any kind of uh, marginalised oppression that you're you're wrestling with. That's not about, you know, a, a couple being inherently better or a relationship and marriage being an inherently better place morally to raise children. It's that everything around that couple makes it easier for them to thrive, makes it easier for them to make sure that the child has good health care, makes it easier for mm. the child to be, you know, having a decent education, being fed properly, most of which, by the way, is orchestrated and organised by the mother, which is why it's so much in the interest of the state and the government to make sure that people keep getting married because mothers doing the unpaid care work and the unpaid labour in the home alleviates a lot of the pressure that would otherwise be put on the state to make sure that people have that kind of economic access. Sure, but arguably that doesn't change. Let's say we get rid of the government piece of paper and it's just two people cohabiting. Mm -hmm. There are still those structures and those patriarchal structures which will assume that the mother or the female, the woman, is going to stay home and raise this child. Of course. Of course those that there will still be those assumptions, but that doesn't make the those assumptions defensible. It doesn't mean that because that is currently in in a very like loose framework, been enabled to be the most, the situation which gives you the most potential to raise healthy children. And I want to be really careful, and I think we should be really careful that when we repeat findings of studies that are not looking at things from an even playing field, that what we inadvertently or sometimes deliberately in some people's cases do is really disparage the incredible work that is done by single mothers. It's really difficult for single mothers who are, who are oftentimes struggling against poverty and who are often also dealing with the fact that the father just f***ed off or they saved themselves and their children from an abusive situation. It's really hard for them to constantly hear, well, the healthiest environments to raise children in are in loving two-parent households. Great, fine. What are they meant to do with that? Because they're actually the ones who stayed. They're the ones who are working against every possible barrier that's been placed up to them to make sure that their children thrive. I mean, our prime minister is the son of a single mother. I, I don't think that it's 
helpful, and I'm not I'm not saying this to you, I'm just saying generally, I really don't think that it's helpful to, to continue to beat that drum when actually what we should be saying is that the reality is that a lot of children are raised in single mother households. And that's not because we have this overwhelming swathe of selfish 40-year-old women out there who've just decided they don't need a man and they're going to do it by themselves. By the way, congratulations to those women. Love that. More of you should do it. You shouldn't have to like get a boyfriend in order to have a child. But the reality is that we will have this proportion of people who are raising children either in single mother households or in homes that exist below the poverty line. And we can't just say, well, it's better if children are raised in this two-parent household. We have to say, if the reality is that a lot of children are being raised in these households, how can we make it so that they have the, the same outcomes as those children who mm. have all of the economic and social and class privilege of a two-parent household? No, I, I take your point, and that's why I emphasised, you know, mm. healthy and happy households, because no doubt there are so many who were raised where, for whatever reason, the mother or father won't leave, and they're incredibly like I grew up around so much dysfunction mm. and so much domestic violence, but in which a culture in which women were conditioned not to leave, and I've seen the product of raising children mm. in you know, nuclear homes, there's so much trauma and there's so much um, addiction and abuse um, and, and problems. So I do take your point. Um, and that's why, you know, I try to emphasise where possible healthy, safe homes. On the flip side of that as well is, and, and I'm, I'm also sorry for your experience, I know that that is um, the way that women from all sorts of different backgrounds are made to feel like they have to stay and they have to shield and they have to hide and they have to... Um, and also in, in many respects, economically, they have no freedom to go. Mm. It brings into stark relief the fact that when we say things like we care about children as a society and we care about mothers as a society, but we won't do anything really substantial to address men's violence against women, to address economic disenfranchisement, to address um, the motherhood penalty. It actually means that we don't really care about those mm. things. We just care about pretending that we care about those things. And, and mostly we care about the children of the most privileged people and we care about the mothers who are the most privileged. And that's a, sh that's a crying shame. Mm. Um, I think that if we, I totally take your point and agree with you. Like I, I can't stop people from partnering up. So if they're going to partner up, I want it to be in healthy, happy, respectful, equal relationships in order, if we're going to, as a society say, well, that's the best framework to raise children in, even though I think that leaving aside what I said before about single mothers, if people are going to insist on that, or if the government is going to insist on that, then what we also need is a political commitment and a social commitment from the community to say, so we will do everything we can to make sure that those relationships are happy and healthy, which means that we will have programs about men's violence against women. We will have open conversations about the unequal unpaid care load. We will make sure that mothers are able to return to work so that they're not economically trapped. We will make sure that we are raising boys to respect women. So many people hold up the first thing as being, well, that's that's the way that things should be and don't want to talk about the second thing because they don't actually want to change the structures that make it so impossible for a lot of those relationships to be actually happy and healthy and equal. Have you accepted that you may never be invited to a wedding again? I will... Look, some people might be like, F her, I'm not, we're not having her. But I went to a wedding this year. In July, I went to my cousin's wedding. It was beautiful. I love... Listen... I hate marriage. I hate the institution, but I'm a multi-layered person and I love a good party. I don't think that you can, you know, if you want to get married, 
quote unquote married, have a party. A lot of people say we wanted to have the party. Okay, have it. Have a party. Invite your community. I get the impulse to want to engage in a ritual. We are ritualistic people. It's really beautiful to bring your community together and have a ritual. I just don't understand why the government needs to be involved. It is. It would be so easy and possible for people to have the exact same thing happen, but not formally get married, not formally make it so that if they dissolve that marriage later on down the track, it actually costs money to do it. You know, it's not easy to get a divorce and it's expensive for a lot of people. I will continue to go to weddings if people invite me to them and I won't be the ghost at the feast. You know, I'll sit there and I'll cheer and I'll cry. I cried when my cousin got wedding, but you know, you know, the reason why I cried and why I felt so happy for her wasn't because oh my God, I'm so happy for her. She's getting married. And that's the most amazing thing that she can ever do. Like my cousin is so incredible and so multi-talented that I consider the fact that she got married almost the least interesting part about her. In fact, probably yes, the least interesting part about her. And, and And she knows that and she doesn't feel offended by it. What I loved about it was when I heard them saying their vows, it was really clear to me that her now husband, and they've been together for years, that he really knows who she is and he really sees her. And the way that he spoke about her was, it wasn't like, I love you so much. I love how you make me feel. I love what you do for us. It was so clear that he observes this woman every day of her life. And I think that maybe that is also one of my root problems with a lot of marriage is that it just happens and I see the other side of it because women write to me, they tell I'm the secret keeper for a lot of women and I see them in mother's groups And they do it and then they spend the rest of their lives fading into the wallpaper. The men do not see them. They don't know who they are. They just sort of experience them as like, I think in the book I call them like an all-in-one appliance that just does everything around the the home and is expected to to fulfil and facilitate their lives. And with my cousin, I thought you could be married or not be married and it wouldn't change the fundamental nature of your relationship, which is that he loves you and you love him and you truly are two people who uplift each other, but you don't make each other better. I become more aware of how great he is because of how you talk about him and people he knows Mm. become aware of how great you are because of how he talks about you. It's this idea of like you can still be two independent people and still thrive and shine and the marriage is just a thing that you happen to have together rather than it being the thing. Clementine Ford, Australian feminist, author, broadcaster and speaker. Her book, I Don't, is available at all good bookstores. And if you're wondering, if you're curious, for the moment, I will be staying married. So now it's time for the weekend list where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat or listen to. Helen Smith, producer extraordinaire, what do you have this week? So my first recommendation this week is... It's a bit basic, but dried mangoes dipped in dark chocolate from Aldi. They right. are my new obsession. I'm obsessed with them. I've been telling all my girlfriends, like, guys, you have to try this. I don't know. I just, I see dried fruit and I go, yuck. Yeah. I do not want to eat that. That's for me. How can I make this not healthy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, perfect. Dipped in dark chocolate. Amazing. That's for me. And I I swear, I swore that I did not like dried mango. Never, never was going near me. Mm. I don't know. I picked up this packet, best thing ever. And I've been pairing it like one bit because they're quite big. Some of the bits are like yeah. chunky. 
So I pair a bit of it with like fresh berries or something and it's the best dessert. I don't feel like I need to overindulge because yeah. the dark chocolate and the sweetness, it's, it's quite, it's a lot, but it's good. And yeah, that is my recommendation. And so do you, when you dip it in the dark chocolate, do it's, you? It's pre-dipped. Pre-dipped. Oh, it's in pre-dipped. The oh, you don't yep. even have to do anything. No, no, no. Don't okay. have to do a thing. Okay. That's what I love. I just whip it out and go for it. Yeah, yeah love it. Okay, I'm going to have to try that. Well, in keeping with food, my recommendation, like poke bowls are all the rage and there is a cost of living crisis. So yes. what I have been doing is opening my fridge, anything that has a colour, put it in a bowl and call it a poke bowl. It, it can be anything. It can be sun-dried tomato, a bit of bread that you scrunch up, some kale that's going off a little bit, whatever sauce is available, any sauce. And you go, this is, oh and all God. you need to do to impress people, if people go, what on earth is that hideous concoction, mm. is choose a city, a pretty likeable city, and be like, or a place, it's like, it's a Seminyak poke bowl. Oh. Or it's a, this is my Tokyo poke, poke bowl. <laughs> this is my Santa Monica poke bowl. Um, and really it is just the revolting leftovers in your fridge that hasn't mm. quite gone off yet, but yeah. has enough colour to justify calling it a poke bowl. That is so funny. That <laughs> that gives me the vibe when my mum just used to make chicken casseroles in the pot and just throw anything in. Yes. And she'd be like, oh, it's a beautiful chicken casserole. And I'm like, well, what is this? Like, who puts these veggies in here? That is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> it is a poor man's poke bowl. Poor I, man. <laughs> I, suggest, I suggest you try it. All right. I may try that one. We shall see. So my second recommendation is it actually onto the food theme again. I didn't, we've, yeah, a lot of food themes. It's an article by The Cut on that cult supermarket, the super expensive one, Erwan. Mm, yeah. So you can buy bottles of water, cold water for $26 US. Uh, their viral smoothies, $18 for these right. like Hayley Bieber smoothies, like all celebrity things. But it's such a fascinating article and it just deep dives into how this kind of, it, it's wild on TikTok. They always go viral, all of their, like people do hauls. Like you go to this supermarket and do a haul of what you've bought and people are spending $200 on like this tiny bag of things. Yeah, right. And it just deep dives into how it started and this microbiotics diet you got to be rich to have those sort oh, of that sort of completely. diet. Completely, I reckon most of our listeners are going to opt for my poor man poke bowl. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> this is also oh, it's only in the states, but I just really find this supermarket and anything like that really fascinating. If you want to check it out, check the article out, but also just Google it on TikTok on Instagram. Mm. There's so many viral videos of these tiny tubs of watermelon, and they're forty dollars, forty US dollars. That's like, wild. Why? The other thing I have this week is stand-up comedy. And it doesn't have to be a big name. I reckon, you know, for most ma major cities or even regional centres, there are comedy gala or showcases and it's usually about 20 or 30 bucks. Some will be great, you know, um, but there will always be some as funny as your awkward uncle. Um, but I reckon it's a chance to laugh. I have discovered some of my favourite comedians from just buying a ticket on a random night and giving mm. it a crack and having a laugh. And I reckon the world could do with a lot more laughs.
Mm, I love that one. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us and tuning in. It's always a pleasure. And if you want more of the weekend briefing, you can find us on the Listener app. You can download the Listener app in the App Store. Follow us there. Otherwise, you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not give us a rating and review for this fabulous interview with Clementine? Uh, And FYI, you can review and rate every episode's compliments. Welcome. We'll be back Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones along with some interesting interviews. Stay safe, everyone. Listener.